We've all been told that two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time, right? Just makes sense. Have you ever tried to sit in the same chair that your brother tried to sit in first? It doesn't work super well. Uh, but I think also um, two kingdoms cannot occupy the same space at the same time. In fact, we have a word for this. We have a word for what we call it when one kingdom begins to occupy space, another kingdom previously controlled. We call that an invasion, right? Uh, and in this story, um, we are getting uh, the invasion of God. And so, I thought it might be helpful for us this morning to, to give that some context. I want to think a little bit about the most famous invasion that all of us are aware of, um, which uh, occurred on June 6, 1944. Uh, and I want to do so with a video somebody else made, but that has all footage original to the event. So, as far as I know, except for the, the still shots in color, all of the video footage we're going to watch was recorded on June 6, 1944. Um, this, of course, is the story of D-Day.
I've seen a lot of movies about World War II and D-Day. Somehow, seeing real footage feels different. Every time I come back to the story of that day and its significance, it strikes me that it is such an incredible metaphor for us to think about what Christ has done as, as D-Day was to World War II and the liberation of Europe. So the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus is to God's war and the liberation of earth. God's kingdom is coming and there is already a kingdom on the shore where it is landing, and so two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And so what Jesus does here in the Gospel of Mark is the opening salvo of the kingdom of God's invasion of this world. And it is an unbelievably wild ride as Jesus shows up. We have sort of three big things that are happening. We have uh, the exorcism of demons, um, which happens again and again and again. We have the healing of the sick, and we have the good news preached and the disciples called to this new teaching. And all of this comes with this incredible urgency, uh, like you can imagine the commanders yelling at the troops. It's immediate, right? It's immediately, immediately get on the beach take the land, keep moving forward. So I want to think about um, this invasion moment, the incoming kingdom of God, and these three huge things that, that Jesus does in the very beginning of His ministry here in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to start with the more exciting one. I want to talk first about the casting out of demons. So um, we have very few experiences in our world today with demons. We have a lot of experiences in our world today with mental illness. And so it's very easy for us to sort of map one on the other and say, oh, I think probably the, the demon possession stuff in the Bible is just people dealing with brain disease. They didn't understand it at the time. And I want to begin by saying there probably were some people in the ancient world who just had mental illness who got mislabeled. But that's not what's happening here in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, um, the author wants us to recognize that as Jesus takes the beach, as He lands and begins His ministry, there is an enemy army already there, already possessing the territory. Uh, and that enemy army um, is the army of the guy He just met in the wilderness for 40 days. So, in the Bible, uh, demons are fallen angels, right? They are servants of the enemy. And um, we, we can tell right from our Scripture that this is not a simple case of mental illness because these beings know information they could not know any other way. These are not um, simply ill people. They recognize Jesus, not just in His earthly identity, Jesus of Nazareth, but in His divine identity, you are the Holy One of God. The rest of the people in the Gospel of Mark, including especially the believers and the disciples, have no idea who Jesus is yet. It's going to take them eight chapters to figure out He's the Messiah, much less to figure out He's the Son of God. But immediately, uh, these spiritual forces recognize Jesus and call Him out. 
Uh, by the way, I don't know um, why they name him. I don't know if they name him because it is an attempt to control him. In the ancient world, very often people thought if you knew the name of something, you had power over it. Or if they name him because they're just terrified and they can't, you know, do anything but, but exclaim his identity. Um, either way, in this moment, we are to recognize that as Jesus' kingdom comes onto the earth, there is... Um, an occupying force already there. And his interest is to remove them. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, it's probably worth noting that in the Bible, even those that are… there's possession and oppression in the Bible, and we're not going to get to oppression today, but possession is uh, the idea that sometimes um, people can be sort of taken over by, by these demonic forces. Um, we're not to believe that, like, they're permanent demon robots, right? So, it's not like you can't ever have any of your own choices or willpower but that there are times where um, these people were overpowered by the forces of the enemy, that um, just as humans are stronger than animals, so angels are stronger than humans. And so the point of this story is that Jesus is stronger still. The point of this story is that Jesus is stronger than the strongest forces on this earth, even those that are not of this earth, that God's kingdom as it comes is able to push out the enemy. Another way to say this is um, God is bigger than the boogeyman, right? He's bigger than the gorilla, Godzilla and the monsters on TV. Um, God's bigger than those that He came to fight. Mark wants us to recognize that you can't free France without getting rid of the Nazis. You can't take back the land unless you remove those who are occupying it. Now, removing the Nazis isn't all that it takes to make France a free country again, but it is an essential beginning for freedom. And more importantly, it's a battle the French can't win on their own. Satan's stronger than us, but Jesus is stronger than Satan. And, and the radical thing that Mark does in this story is he, he changes the location of the battle. So, uh, in the story of Daniel, we get some of the first texts about um, good angels and bad angels going to battle, right? We heard this weird thing about um, this, this man who's obviously not a man because he's glowing and fiery and his voice sounds like a multitude. So, this angel comes to Daniel, but he says, I tried to get here and I couldn't get here for like a whole long time because the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and he dealt with him so I could come to you. Right? So, Daniel is envisioning this idea that uh, on, this, on the level of nations, um, God is moving and working, and there are forces opposed to God, personal forces of evil that are working against Him. Uh, the, the Persian kingdom under the power of the enemy is opposed to um, the people of God under the power of, of God and Michael, God's servant. But Mark moves the battle from the scale of nations to the life of every human heart. Mark says um, this is not just about whether we as a nation can become independent again or um, whether our nation can be a nation under God. He says every person is to be under God. Every person is someone that God has come to fight for and rescue and ultimately, we'll find out later, die for. This idea of, of Jesus' casting out of foreign powers on His earth 
is essential to Mark's ministry. So, first, Mark tells us about uh, the, the work of Jesus in casting out these foreign powers. Then he talks about something um, slightly more mundane but still miraculous. He talks about Jesus healing the sick. This is a really interesting moment. So, Jesus goes to Peter's um, house, and his mother, Peter's mother-in-law is there, and Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. So, today, we think of fevers as symptoms of diseases. But in the ancient world, uh, they didn't really understand that, and so they sort of thought of a fever as a disease unto itself. And today, we get a fever most of the time. For most of us, we don't worry too much about a fever. You can take some antibiotics, you chug some orange juice, uh, you take a nap, you go about your day. Um, but in the ancient world, for obvious reasons, fevers were pretty serious. Uh, and so, there was this understanding um, that uh, this was a particularly challenging kind of illness. In fact, um, sometime after Jesus, there's a, a rabbi um, who wrote about fevers and compared them to the miracle where Daniel's three friends, three friends are thrown in the fiery furnace. Uh, and this rabbi said, greater is the miracle wrought for the sick than that for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. For that of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah concerned a fire kindled by man, which all can extinguish, whilst that of a sick person is in connection with a heavenly fire, and who can extinguish that? There was this understanding in the ancient world, even in the Jewish world, that fevers were kind of a heavenly fire. Anybody can put out a regular fire, but who can put out a, 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 an inside-your-body fire? And the answer is Jesus, right? Jesus can do it. And so Jesus um, immediately heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then something really important happens for the context of our story. We're told that after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, she gets up and begins to, to serve them, to minister to them. We've only had this language one time so far in the Gospel of Mark. It was what happened to Jesus in the wilderness after Satan left. The angels come to serve Him or to minister to Him. So, what Jesus does for this woman is He gives her the opportunity to choose, and she chooses literally the side of the angels. She chooses literally to join in the work of the angels and serving the King of Kings. So, we have uh, the, the taking of the beach, we have the casting out of the enemy occupying force, and then we have um, this, this healing of this woman and giving her a choice to serve from her physical illness, she's, she's healed. And then we have, throughout this story, the preaching of the gospel and the calling of the disciples. And this is um, really where the rubber meets the road for us. Jesus shows up and He sees Peter and Andrew and James and John on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and He says, hey, come follow Me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they leave everything behind, and they follow Him. And then Jesus continues into the temple, and He teaches with authority a new teaching, unlike what people have heard before. And then at the end of our story, Jesus says, hey, I'm not interested in staying in Capernaum and being a celebrity. I want to go on and keep preaching. My main mission is to push out the enemy and then proclaim this message. Mark wants us to understand that the most important part of Jesus' work isn't defeating the demons or healing the sick. The purpose of pushing back the forces of evil is to make it possible for humanity to answer the call of God. It is calling the people of this world to choose which kingdom they will serve. 
we are more than just victims to be rescued. God has a plan in which we can be a part. Two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time, and in the same way, two kingdoms can't occupy our hearts. And so, Jesus comes and invites us to be free of our world and to begin a new journey with Him in this new kingdom. But it is a real choice that we make. Um, Martin Luther, who wrote that beautiful hymn that we sang a little while ago, Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther described our choice like this. He said that, imagine you are a horse and there are two riders for you. One rider is God. One rider is God's great enemy. Um, you don't get to choose whether you are a horse, and you don't get to choose where you're going, but you do get to choose your rider. And in this story, Jesus is beginning to make possible the choice for us to choose to be guided by God. Ooh, hey, fun fact. Um, let's talk about fishermen for a minute. Uh, we, we love this little language that Jesus does where He says, hey, uh, I know you're fishermen, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. It's a great play on words, and um, Jesus is a great teacher, obviously. But I, I think we have heard that story and not thought deeply about it, right? We usually think, oh, well, He means evangelism. And He does mean evangelism, absolutely. But in the Old Testament, um, very often fishermen um, and being a fisherman is not just about calling people to God. It's more often about judgment. Again and again and again in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Habakkuk, we get these metaphors of people being, becoming fishermen, and part of it is um, a, a, a judgment that's, that God's bringing on the earth. Um, think about what happens to a fish when you catch it. Right? It's not always good for the fish, right? Uh, and so, um, in this story, as Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and James and John and the people in the synagogue and the people throughout Capernaum and the people throughout Galilee to um, consider who they want to guide their life, He invites them to be part of God's work of reclamation, of reconquering, of reconquest, of continuing the invasion. So, uh, if we want to play out our metaphor a little bit further, if um, in our metaphor of D-Day and the invasion, Jesus is the allied forces, and uh, the Satan and the demons are the Nazis and the German troops. Um, there's a, a third party that we forget about. We forget about uh, the French resistance, right? La Resistance. And La Resistance was um, active long before D-Day. I mean, they were working ever since 1940 in the Battle of France where their country was conquered. Um, it was estimated that about 1 to 3 percent of all of the population of France was part of the French resistance. And, and for years before D-Day, they worked. They were Abraham and Sarah. They were Moses and Miriam and Aaron and David and Elijah, and Elisha, and Ruth, and Esther, they were those who had been preparing the way like John the Baptist. And then, in the context of D-Day, there was a group of those French resistance fighters that got to be involved in the invasion itself. General Charles de Gaulle was informed by Winston Churchill on June 4th um, that the Allies would land in two days. 
The French resistance had a number of plans in place. On June 5th, they activated Plan Violet. Plan Violet was the most important part of their contribution to Operation Overlord and the invasion on D-Day. It was the destruction of all the telephone lines and underground cables that ran throughout the nation of France. This was how the Nazi soldiers were communicating with each other, and without those communication cables, they were forced to use radios. And the radio transmissions had been hacked by the British hackers in Bletchley Park. And so, um, as soon as those cables and phone lines went down, the Allies had um, full access to all the German communications during all of the invasion of Normandy. During the Normandy campaign, the French resistance was so effective um, that the Wehrmacht completely abandoned the French phone system as unreliable. Uh, the other um, critical components of the French resistance in the context of D-Day were something called Plan Vert and Plan Tortue. I'm probably saying this wrong. Uh, and um, uh, on June 7th, the day after D-Day, the French resistance in just a matter of days had so effectively destroyed French railroads at 486 different locations that the German army had to give up transporting their troops by rail and began transporting their troops over land by trucks, which led to the second part of the plan, Plan Tortue, where um, the Maquis forces of the French resistance, the armed soldiers, paired up with the SAS, the secret service of the British, and the OSS, the secret service of the Americans, and ambushed all of those German soldiers on their way to the battlefront. There were accounts where three-day journeys for German reinforcements took 14 days because of the French resistance fighters aiding the Allies. One of the British intelligence officers working with the Maquis bands said this, it was hard to tell what they had been before German labor laws threw them all together in the depths of the wild woods. Some had been shopkeepers, artisans, young sons of wealthy parents. Others were scum of the gutter, and many were soldiers. Now, however, all were much the same. All wore the clothes, and many still the wooden clogs of peasants. Some lucky ones had scraps of uniforms and British battle dress, but predominantly their clothes consisted of drab-colored shirts, blue overall trousers, and German field boots, whose owners no doubt had ceased to require them for obvious reasons. They wore neither regular uniforms nor brassards of any kind. The only distinguishable difference between the men of the Maquis and the men of the country from which they had sprung was the pistol cocked aggressively from the trouser tops, the rifle on the shoulder, the sten on the back, or the string of grenades, depending on the belt." Those Maquis soldiers in the French resistance, that's you. Some were fishermen, and some were tax collectors, and some were zealots, and some were harlots, and some were once demon-possessed, but now they were all something else. That what Jesus is inviting the people to be a part of as He travels throughout Galilee is to be a part of the resistance, to say, hey, I am the strong man. I am the allies. I will push out the enemy, but you get to be a part of that work. Jesus was um, named uh, after another guy in the Bible. Um, nobody ever called Jesus, Jesus. 
Jesus is like our English version of His name. Everybody who knew Jesus called Him Yeshua, um, which would have been the Hebrew version of His name. Yeshua, we usually translate as Joshua. Jesus is named after this guy Joshua in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, Joshua is the disciple or the follower of Moses. He leads the people in an invasion of the promised land. He takes God's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and he invades these seven kingdoms of evil and wickedness, and he pushes them out so that there is room for God's people to take over. And at the end of Joshua's life, he preaches one final sermon to God's kingdom's people, and he says this, "'Now therefore revere the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight. He protected us all along the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord for He is our God. Jesus comes to say, no longer is this a battle between nations. It is a battle between human hearts. But Jesus has made a beachhead. He's landed the kingdom of God. He has made it possible for us to access the Father. He has made a, a, a freedom for us to make some really simple choices. We are the choice. We are the horse who gets to choose its rider. We are the Frenchman who gets to choose whether to partner with the Germans or serve the allies. We are the Israelite called in the days of Joshua. You are the fishers working by the lake. You are the people listening in the synagogue. One stands before us heralding a new kingdom, and the strongest forces in this world cannot stand before Him, and darkness is as light to Him, and death is as life to Him, and His kingdom is coming, and there is no time to wait. Everything is happening now immediately, and so this day choose whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.